Hey there, and welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Jared Lumen, the Soil Health Lead for the Sustainable Farming Association, and today we're talking to Doug Voss and Austin Yantis about a project they collaborated on using livestock to restore oak savanna. I was fortunate to get out to the site earlier this year and see a bit of what they were working on. I've been anxiously awaiting to learn about what ended up happening. So Doug and Austin, welcome to the Dirt Rich Podcast. Thanks. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I When I was out there, it was really, it's exciting. It's such a vast open space with so much potential. I'm just excited to hear about kind of what happened. But before we dig into the project specifically, Austin, I'm curious if you wouldn't mind maybe introducing yourself a little bit briefly. The Our listeners have heard uh, from Doug and myself and know a bit about uh, who we are. But if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and then talk a little bit about this Oak Savannah ecosystem and, and what, you know, just to give a little context to what that that is. Sure. Yeah. So I am a PhD candidate at the University of Minnesota. I'm in the Natural Resources Science and Management program. And then I am the research project manager for this Oak Savannah project we have going out on Sherburne National Wildlife Refuge. So this refuge is near Zimmerman, Minnesota. It's on the Anoka Sand Plain. So think very sandy, grouty soils. And so historically, prior to European settlement, the whole area of the refuge uh, would have been dominated by oak savanna. And these are just the most unique and beautiful ecosystems. I love them. They support such uh, an immense diversity of life. And they're unique in that they're very disturbance dependent. So they cannot exist without really frequent disturbances. So... At Sherburne, the main disturbances or stressors we would be thinking about would be indigenous fire management, the Dakota and the Ojibwe people, the dry soil conditions, like I mentioned, and then grazing by bison and elk. And so all of these factors would be working together to promote a really open park-like environment where you have grasses and flowers dominating the understory, so picture a prairie, and then just a few widely spaced oak trees that would be tolerant of the frequent fires that were happening. So not a lot of saplings and not a lot of shrubs because all those disturbances would be working together to keep them suppressed. But when Europeans uh, settled in the area in the late 1800s, they started cutting down all of the oaks to farm And the refuge managers estimate that 90% of the savanna on the refuge was lost. And then in addition to that, any of the remaining patches of savanna, so anything that survived, pretty quickly transformed into these really dense, shrubby, closed canopy kinds of forests due to fire exclusion. So there was no longer indigenous folks allowed to manage the land with the frequent fire. And then also the total removal of bison and elk from the landscape. And that's a problem because shrubs can create these really dense thickets. They stifle other plant species, reduce habitat quality, and you really get away from the open, diverse structure that's characteristic of oak savannas. Yeah. And with the, you talked about those characteristics of historical oak savannas. Why is that, why would that be considered an ideal or a good kind of environment to try and bring back or to, to enhance? Yeah. So oak savannas are so unique kind of because of their disturbance patterns. 
So you get this dynamic pattern on the landscape of areas that have burned and areas that have grazed and areas that have been burned and grazed. And it's really patchy. So it supports so many different kinds of species. Mm. Um, You have such a diverse habitat structure and um, an associated diversity of life. And so there's been studies that have shown that savannas actually support more plant species in the understory than either forests or prairies. And then that provides really good habitat for all sorts of animals, bird species, insects, many of which are in danger and decline, uh, good habitat for game animals like turkeys. And so we just really want to promote this ecosystem because it is so unique and because it's such important habitat for many imperiled species. Yeah. It it reminds me of, I think Steve Kenyon is who I heard talk about it first, where he talks about the value of edges and he says they're trying to maximize Mm -hmm. edges on their farm. Like, you know, the edges between prairie and woodlands and wetlands and streams. And that's where all the action happens. That's where the diversity happens in this kind of constant uh, flux between, you know, the different ecosystems and, and it's exciting. And so I love that, that kind of diversity that you're talking about and, and, and kind of painting a picture for here that these savannas bring is just this maximum different ecosystems, all that clash kind of, and, and kind of just work together. Yeah. It's, it's cool. It's exciting. Yeah, that's exactly right. Cause you have the open prairie like areas, right. That are getting full sun. Then you have the areas under the oak trees that are getting full shade And then the transitional zones, you've got standing dead trees, mature oaks, you just have such a dynamic landscape and it's always shifting because of the constant disturbance. Um, So it's just, it's really neat, really diverse. And so Doug, you spent a lot of time out there last summer. So would you mind maybe just kind of explaining what the landscape now as of today, I guess, or priority management of the, the Sherburne Wildlife Refuge looks like as far as it's habitats and ecosystems as they sit today? Sure. Well, first, I think it's important to understand a little bit about the context. You know, this is a a pretty large acreage of land, and it does have, you know, a lot of diversity from woodland areas to open prairies and and wetland areas. And so, you know, to think that, you know, it's a big project is what I'm saying. And we're also limited as far as the tools and the size of the tools we use, I'll say. And and when I mean that from a management perspective as a grazer, you know, with that kind of landscape, there's there's only so many cows in Minnesota, for example, to be able to really initiate a real significant change. And so we're approaching this like the old saying is, you know, the question, how do you eat an elephant? And the idea is one bit at a time. So, you know, it's being strategic about identifying areas on the refuge that we want to target. So from grazing perspective of how cattle in this project enter in is that we're looking to uh, affect and promote the creation and, and sustainability and sustaining the Oak Savannah appearance of the refuge in places. And so we're targeting different areas and concentrating stock densities to push back some things that we're not wanting to see on certain areas, uh, such as these brushes that Austin was talking about and or at least reducing their concentration and affecting a positive change in that environment, both soil-wise and just the impact that the animals can create with uh, with proper management. 
and we're trying to push the needle forward to try to restore some of these areas that are otherwise being taken over some of these underlying brushy plants. And so that takes some some pretty good planning. But last summer, we integrated and uh, managed just under 400 cow-calf pairs, beef cow-calf pairs, and about a dozen bulls on the refuge. And we moved them through a season that was really, uh, well, we were, we were in drought conditions, right? So we were in D4 drought for much of the summer. So that offered some challenges, but we still were able to target areas that were associated with Austin's project, with the research plots, and um, and make a significant impact on those areas. And I think Austin will probably give a little bit more, you know, background to that from what we had seen in previous years. But it was a successful year, in my opinion, as far as implementing the livestock appropriately and moving towards our goals with restoring some of these oak savannas. Yeah, and you kind of mentioned. Austin's project there. Austin, would you mind giving a little context to your, your specific project and what the goal on this landscape was then? Yeah, so Sherburn, the refuge, they have identified oak savannas as a priority resource of concern. And so they've been working hard to implement various oak savanna restoration strategies. And so they've started implementing tree thinning, so physically harvesting and removing trees to try to reopen up the canopy from forest back to savanna. They've been reintroducing prescribed fire, and then most recently they've added cattle grazing to their toolbox to kind of mimic historic bison grazing. So all of the researchers on the project decided we kind of wanted to assess if layering these different tools could ultimately improve restoration outcomes. So we identified areas on the refuge that had received different restoration treatments or different levels of restoration. So we had two reference sites. We had two sites that were only thinned. We had two sites that were thinned and burned. And then the areas that I've been working with Doug on that were thinned and burned. And now we're adding this extra layer of really high density targeted cattle grazing. So we're, we set out to see um, if as you increase restoration effort, as you add each of these layers of management, does the vegetation look more and more like a healthy oak savanna? To add to the idea of using livestock to achieve some of these resource goals, it's important to understand that just giving a livestock access to these areas doesn't mean that we're going to reach our resource goals. And so it's important that we identify you know, how we integrate the livestock with our management. And so with this project, it's been a great opportunity to demonstrate how much stock density is going to be required to achieve or at least move the needle in some of these areas. And so I guess, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking that, you know, it's a great idea that we integrate livestock on land and just giving them access will help us achieve these goals. It's it's really not about that. It's about how we go about doing that. And so we had to be real deliberate and it was quite a management task just to plan it out to, to get that many livestock in a small area for a given time, given the conditions that we had. So in this situation, we use the heat of the day to congregate animals in a high stock density in these research plots to, um, well, first of all, attract them to an area that was really hospitable in the heat of a summer day because it offered some shade, uh, but then also 
you know, making sure that they had the nutrient requirements met for that time period and they had access to water and these types of things. So, you know, it gets back to the how is just as important as the what when we're looking to uh, make a plan on some of these projects. And so it's been pretty exciting to see the differences in the past with the cattle numbers that were used on the project compared to what was used last year uh, on the scale of the livestock and the difference between, and it's often referred to a higher horsepower engine when you have more cattle in your herd, uh, because it's a great opportunity for livestock and different herd densities to dis- display different herd effects. And uh, so all these things are really fascinating, but I won't go into too much detail today. But, you know, the size of the herd really does matter in how we manage some of these herds. And if we're looking at ecologically, the context of this, you know, Austin talked about herds of, of bison and elk. And, uh, you know, it's really fascinating to come across every once in a while. I come across a, an image that somebody has shared that experienced pre-colonial times and uh, the mass herds that we had. and you know, it's pretty tough to duplicate that. In fact, almost impossible because of the way we've, you know, developed our, our landscape today. But um, with that in mind, trying to make that exact scenario as well as we can with the tools and the abilities that we have to try to restore some of these situations that we're, you know, we're, we're losing us and said too, you know, there's, there's concern that we're, that we don't have some of these environments anywhere close to the densities or or frequency in our landscape the way you want that, and what are we losing as a result of that? So this is kind of some of the efforts that we're looking to employ livestock appropriately to achieve these goals overall. Yeah, and I've heard the the argument, I guess, or the the thought that well, the bison didn't have fence and they weren't managed in a specific way and stuff. So what I guess maybe what was it naturally, or I guess the, the conversation for those folks who might hear that is why do we have to manage them more intensively? You, you kind of touched a little bit that the way the landscapes are laid out are no longer kind of conducive to that same historical kind of natural systems, but what's changed and why do we today need to manage livestock a little more intensively uh, than, than historic uh, wildlife once did? You know, that's a great question. And so looking at what are the differences between then and now, I mean, look at the influence of or lack of predators that we may have today that were maybe present in that system years ago. Um, you know, I'm not sure, and I, and probably there's people that know that information way better than I do as far as how far the timber wolves reached years ago compared to now, maybe. But, you know, we between the effects on some of those situations as far as species of wildlife out there and the influence of predators, but also the learned ability and the, what we call the epigenetic effects of the animals in the environment in which they are. And so just for example, taking the difference between a calf that's raised in a barn uh, by humans compared to this calf being nursed by her, her mom, uh, the calf's mom, and then learning all the, the you know, well, what it takes to be a cow, right? So the cow is going to teach the calf what things to eat or, or how to eat and, and how to be a cow where the calf would be trying to learn that from something other than a cow. And that's there's a difference in that. And so it's some of these things too with what have we created with our management with even our our cattle over the years by focusing on finishing that cow in a, or that steer in a feedlot compared to in nature with that, that animal's ability to select different plant species to, to optimize their health. And so all these things have make a difference, right? I mean, I, I love Alan Williams' quote that he always says that every Every decision we make in life is positive or negative, and it's got cascading and compounding effects. So, you know, when we take animals and we take them out of nature, 
um, we're going to have an effect on that animal. When we have an effect on our on our landscapes, with whatever details that entails, that's going to have an effect, whether it's positive or negative. So some of these things, I think we need to make deliberate efforts to maybe undo some things we did without realizing we were doing them. I'll take a stab at your question too, Jared, if that's Please. okay. Please do, yes. Yeah, so I would say that historically, we had a lot more continuous habitat and we had these endless acres for massive herds of thousands or even millions of bison to roam. Um, but even then they would have been, their behavior would have been intertwined with fire. There's this idea of pyric herbivory where um, fire goes through an area and shortly thereafter, the big grazers are attracted to that area due to the new flush of forage. And so you would have seen these patterns on the landscape historically. And then the issue comes you know, in more contemporary times with trying to recreate those patterns of disturbance in a really fragmented landscape. And so we just have small acreages to work with. We don't have the ability to just let huge herds of bison roam freely, um, you know, through the suburbs and through <laughs> cities. And so we take these small patches of land and we try to manage them really intentionally to mimic bison behavior. So maybe we have these cows coming in at super high densities to kind of mimic how a bison herd would have all flocked to an area after a fire. They would have hit it really hard, wallowed for a while, and then moved on. Um, so we are kind of doing the same thing, or at least trying to mimic that with livestock grazing by having them do this really high intensity grazing, but just for a short duration and then immediately moving on. So it probably mimics bison behavior better than a continuous grazing system or something like that. You know, with the idea of, of how we're trying to positively affect these landscapes, I think it's important to understand that when we're looking at ecological context, we, we oftentimes kind of gravitate to a static environment. And I think it's important to understand that, you know, it wasn't static in past, it, it ebbed and flowed. And so even with our grazing management, we're trying to, we're trying to mirror that, that idea too. There are some areas that we have high stock densities. There are some places we have much lower stock densities. And so what the fact of the matter is, is we're letting the livestock move through all this area and frankly not returning for quite some time because we're looking to suppress a certain specific vegetation outside of the targeted ones that we identify in the Oaks of Anna restoration areas. But um, you know, to promote diversity and what that means is that we you know, have an impact, but the nature likes to come back and surpass its previous state before the impact. So the disturbance actually brings about a positive effect once nature is allowed to recover from the disturbance. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more, Doug. The idea of disturbance being shifting and patchy and dynamic. And if we can recreate that in any way with our contemporary toolkit, um, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's exciting too, because on this particular location, you're not constrained by what a lot of us private landowners are, you know, we have bills to pay and things like that. You can manage in a way that isn't necessarily driven purely by profitability and maximum utilization. And, and that allows for a, a new kind of set of eyes and a new maybe perspective on how you manage it that's focused in this situation primarily on more of the 
the habitat restoration and the ecosystem restoration as opposed to just maximum grass production or something like that, which is exciting. And and if either of you have anything to add on that, I'd be curious to kind of, you know, start seeing what that that focus and that that kind of that management that you discussed, Doug, kind of played out to this year and what some what are some of the things that you saw? Well, honestly, Jared, I would say I would just suggest that I don't really manage there much differently than I do on my own farm. I'm managing my own farm with ecology has as right up there, if not the top thing, right next to the top thing. Um, I really do feel that if we can promote good sound and improve improving ecology in our farm, a lot of the other things and opportunities will present themselves as a result. You know, and, and whether that's, you know, sticking enterprises like you and I have talked about before, you know, there's a lot of ranches out there, not to distract from the Sherburn project here, but there's a lot of ranches that, that that's like a secondary benefit. And so now they all of a sudden have opportunities to incorporate, you know, uh, guided hunting tours or something because they promoted wildlife on their farm because of the ecological results that they found as a result of their management. And so in this situation, we're, we're actually looking to utilize a very small portion of the grass production, for example, that's on the prairies for the the livestock we're looking to incorporate as much carbon as we can into the system and again this system isn't any different than our systems on our own farms and ranches um, you know we need to address principles that are found in nature and and promote those and not you know asking our animals to utilize or, or consume too much of the vegetation that would handicap animal performance but then also what's it going to do to the environment there too so um, you know, it, it's a matter of educating ourselves and really doing a good job of trying to identify our goals and then achieving them. So, yeah, I guess it, it, I uh, can understand a different perspective, but it's really not maybe as different as some may think. And you're you're definitely right in that we can kind of mimic nature in some ways. And I guess my more so on that kind of comment was when you had talked about like leaving the grasslands and not coming back for a long period of time and how a lot of times, I guess, historically, you know, bison or animals may not have returned to a site for a year, two years, you know, extended, very extended periods of times that may not be practical in a production-based grazing system. But you brought up a neat point, too, that I was just having a conversation with somebody about earlier of uh, kind of what that does for your land. You maybe have all of this tall grass that may provide a habitat for something else. And in this particular conversation I was having with someone else, they were talking about how beavers were uh, <laughs> making a lot of people unhappy in their area, flooding a lot of good ground and stuff. And it's like, well, the conversation we kind of had was, well, maybe you're fighting nature and, and that ground never should have been in production. And, and is there a way that you can harvest value off of that landscape by letting beavers do their own thing? And I've seen some some landscapes that beavers have flooded. It's beautiful. I mean, it's incredible kind of aqua, uh, you know, aquatic systems that maybe could be harvested, value could be harvested off of like you had talked about sort of like a hunting or a fishing enterprise or maybe a local cabin that you can lease out, you know, in more of agritourism. There's ways to capture value out of a more natural system that's not purely just harvesting cow days or pounds of meat off of grass. And and it's something that we could discuss as producers anyway, of changing our perspective on how we harvest value in ways additional, uh, in, in ways additional to just pounds of meat or cow days on grass or something. Yeah, I'll say that I've been really inspired by Doug and the other farmers who I've met on this project, their ecological mindedness. I come from just a straight environmental science, ecology background, and I think I can speak for a lot, not all, but a lot of ecologists when I say there's kind of this 
bad taste in your mouth when it comes to agriculture and specifically cattle grazing because it has this bad reputation in ecological communities, environmental science communities for being really destructive. Um, And that's, you know, because we have in our heads this idea of continuous grazing or unmanaged grazing that lacks this focus on ecological goals. So I would say that one of my favorite things about this project is it's such a cool way to manage landscapes that integrates both livestock production, but also ecological restoration and conservation goals. And I think that has been really eye-opening for me. And I hope it can be for other people too that don't have that kind of farming background. Yeah, I really appreciate that comment, Austin, because one of the things that we talk about even with with um, integrating livestock from a conservation an adaptive principle mindset is that, you know, these landscapes are grazing obligate. I mean, they are not going to maintain a, a status of health without the disturbance like you referenced before. And so there's purpose, you know, there, there's a method to the madness, right? And there's purpose behind the disturbance and integration of the livestock in an appropriate way. And um, it, yeah, it, it's really encouraging when we can see results with good management. Yeah. Well, you just, you just, touched on it there see results with good management so that's a good segue into talking about some of the results that that this management had on the landscape and i i think when we were there you talked about the intensity of the harvesting of data off of this i think i mean you spent a lot of time like counting leaves maybe i mean talk to me about what this looked like and what, and then and then some of the actual stuff that you found so it's pretty pretty cool yeah field work's definitely not glamorous i will say that um But I guess just for a little bit of context, uh, so we've been talking about trying to get certain restoration outcomes or meet certain goals. So I just kind of wanted to clarify quickly, the refuge sets specific restoration goals. So in our oak savannas, the target conditions we're trying to get to through these different management uh, tools are 10 to 50% canopy cover of the trees no more than 35% shrub cover, and then at a minimum, 50% grass and flower cover with a nice, really diverse herbaceous community. So that's what we're trying to get to. So when I did my surveys, um, I used plot-based surveys, and then I also ran some transects where I was conducting surveys along them, looking at the herbaceous plants, shrubs, saplings, uh, and the canopy, so measuring trees. And yeah, it it was a a lot of very slow going, uh, kind of repetitive data collection. And yes, at one point I was counting individual leaves because I wanted to know (laughs) how much of the shrubs the cows were actually consuming um, because we don't necessarily think about beef cattle as being big eaters of shrubs. So I wanted to know if they were or not. But in general, results wise, so remember that I was saying we looked at all these different types of restoration tools. So thinning and burning and grazing. So we found that thinning and burning was able to successfully reduce the canopy. So the canopy of trees down to just that 28% cover, which is exactly within the goal that we were hoping for. However, neither of the other goals were met. So shrub cover was way too high, even after all of this restoration effort. 
of thinning and burning. Um, so shrub cover was about 50% and then even more dense in some areas. I mean, there was some areas of shrubs where um, I couldn't even see over them. They were so tall and so thick. And then herbaceous cover was also too low in these areas. So about only 30%. So definitely not the open, grassy, savanna community we wanted to see. So this is why we really wanted to start implementing this high-density targeted cattle grazing that we've been talking about because the normal tools hadn't worked, right? Or they hadn't helped us get all the way to our oak savanna vegetation goals, So we were hoping that the cattle grazing would be able to improve our outcomes beyond what just the thinning and burning had achieved. So we were hoping to be able to use the cattle to reduce shrub cover and shrub density and then also promote a more uh, diverse and then better coverage of the herbaceous community. Well, I'm curious, just because you mentioned diversity in plant species, and I've heard other people, I'm not even sure who maybe dirt to soil by Gibran or something is coming to mind. Talk about in some of these prairie species, seeing as many as 100, 150, 200 plus different plant species. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you have any numbers as far as what they were and what you were maybe hoping for? You talked about the percent coverage of prairie versus trees versus shrubs. Do you have any sort of goals for actual plant diversity species wise? Um, the refuge had not set a specific goal for you know, a number of species, more so that they just wanted to see an even spread of grasses versus flowers. So not just totally dominated by one grass species, getting lots of different uh, wildflower species in there as well. Mm -hmm. And then also have it be native species. So we definitely don't want to be seeing a lot of cover of invasives. But besides that, we don't have a specific number of species that we're necessarily targeting. It's probably important to mention too, Austin, is that, you know, I mentioned the drought before. It's maybe too early to tell as far as where we'll maybe end up with last year's efforts just because we haven't necessarily had the moisture in time and the recovery time to really have the, some of the research plots express themselves from the impact that they incurred last year. Yeah, well, I want to be clear that the um, the results that I was talking about before that we were, when I was saying that um, shrub cover was too high and herbaceous cover was too low. I was just talking about the areas that had received thinning and burning, not even talking about what we've seen since the cattle have been out there. Well, then, yeah, if there's not more on that, why don't you get into the kind of what, what you saw when you started seeing the, the cattle integration? Yeah. So like I said, we hadn't quite met our goals yet by just using the thinning and then um, repeated prescribed burns. It was still super dense shrub thickets out there Mm -hmm. with pretty low herbaceous cover and diversity. And so we started implementing this targeted um, high density cattle grazing. And after two years of doing that, we've actually seen the shrub density decrease by almost 50%. So I have it at 48% right now. So that's a very noticeable, visibly noticeable and statistically significant difference. Um, And then also we, I've seen in the data that stock density has a significant effect on that change in number of stems. So the higher the stock density, the more stem reduction you see, um, which is maybe intuitive, but it shows us that this specific type of cattle management 
is actually a viable tool to suppress shrubs in oak savanna restorations where the other approaches like fire aren't necessarily working, which I think is really neat. You know, it's interesting, too. I think it's important, Austin, for you to under, uh, mention, too, the order. So we talked a little bit about it earlier, but, you know, so the, the areas in which we targeted last year were already mechanically thinned prior to the grazing. And I think there will be a difference as we compare different scenarios that we created, uh, not necessarily intentionally, but as an example. So we had areas that we gave livestock access to with limited shade. We had comparable stock densities, but areas that were not thinned prior to um, when we were there with the livestock, like the research plots were. And so it'll be interesting over time to see the difference between those two. Yeah. Do you have any kind of hypotheses yet in maybe why you're seeing a difference, what it is about the livestock specifically that's different between that and the the, the fire and thinning? Yeah, definitely. So the tree thinning, we would not expect to control the shrub layer, right? That's just removing trees to open up the canopy. And then after you do that, what can happen is now that you have all of this new sunlight and nutrient availability reaching the understory, you can get this really huge flux of shrubs coming in that weren't there before because they were shaded out by the trees. So the idea with fire is, okay, if we've just thinned it, now we're getting this big flux of shrubs, we have to burn in order to suppress the shrubs and get them under control and really start promoting more of a grassy community. However, the issue is that if you don't burn frequently enough, like when you first start restoring an oak savanna, you need to be burning every year, every other year until you get the woody community under control. And then once you've done that, it's a lot more just about maintaining management but the refuge has been burning more like every five years or so, which has led to this really dense shrub thicket that I've been talking about. The fire or the shrubs are able to re-sprout after a fire. So the fire goes through and then you get this huge re-sprouting of shrubs and it might even be thicker than it was before. And so the cattle have been a way to come into these areas that have gotten overgrown with shrubs and they might not be able to hold a fire or spread a fire anymore because they're so dense and um, not good fuel from the shrubs because there's no grasses. So the cattle can start kind of beating up on the shrubs with this really high stock density that we've talked about, physically breaking the shrubs, grazing on them you know, even ripping them out of the ground sometimes. And so it can be a really good mechanical way to kill the shrubs or knock them back when maybe fire won't burn through that area as well anymore because of how overgrown it's gotten. Yeah. And and Doug, I'm curious, because there's other people out here, you know, listening to this probably who have similar environments on their own farms, overgrown uh, you know, forests or maybe with understories full of whatever the brush or, or whatever is, uh, who think this is pretty interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about the specifics of you know, kind of the management that you did on these places? I mean, stock density, length of time, how often were you moving them? How were you managing through this dense, thick uh, brush with fence and poly wire or with whatever? Just talk a little more about the actual logistics of managing this. Yeah, sure thing. So first of all, I'll say that, you know, we established a really good working relationship with the animals. And so we're moving these animals at the very minimum daily. 
prior to getting even getting to the research plot. So we do start grazing the research plots today. We started grazing at the refuge last season. Uh, we we had moved across a, a number of uh, acres, um, you know, a number of hundreds of acres before we got there. And so when you manage livestock in this way, and Austin realizes too, because she was out there with the polyware and the reels with us, is that you know the the animals learn to trust you. They know that when they see you and you and you give them the audible view that it's time to go get a fresh bite of grass. And so when we were asking these animals to go someplace that didn't have a really you know attractive food stuff for them to go into, they still followed us because they said, you know, you haven't failed us yet, so we're going to follow you even though it doesn't really look like it's all that great where we're going in this kind of <laughs> hazel you know under these sparse oaks and that type of thing, but. Hey, we'll go along anyway. Or we we often promoted them to come into these areas with a silter mineral, and so they would naturally we would have higher stock densities around these sites. So we have to use those to our advantage. But then a couple of them we had water access. Uh, we had to actually pass through one of the research plots to get to their water for the day, which was um, a fenced off bank at the river. And other places they we didn't have that advantage, so it wasn't all that scenario. But a typical day, we'll just say that we were going to target uh, a one-acre research plot that day. We would make sure the animals were satisfied uh, before noon with what they needed for that portion of the day. We would move into that research plot, which offered partial shade. And so the animals would naturally want to migrate to those areas in the heat of the summer. And so we were talking stock densities of over a million pounds to the acre on these on these research plots but for a very you know limited amount of time it wasn't for there for the whole day and animals were certainly not uncomfortable or just or distressed or stressed at all and so animals are moved in 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 those stock densities and then after a while when we we found it was was suitable we would remove them and gave them another fresh paddock after that as a reward so we were asking them to do something for us but we also offered a reward and so we made that trust relationship with the animals by by being consistent with our management and that was really helpful so from that perspective you know we're able to do some pretty incredible things with a herd of livestock but it takes a significant investment and um, the benefits from the livestock side are our animal performance i mean when we're offering uh, that many buffets throughout the day you know that's pretty good for any eater right and so um, that's pretty deep to see that and experience that, especially on a scale, you know, if, if a producer's thinking, well, I only have 20 head or whatever, and yeah, this is 400 pair, but you know, it can be, it can be simulated irregardless of the herd size, but we have considerable, um, advantages when we get to some of these herd sizes, because I mean, for example, if you move livestock into a very small area, it's kind of like sitting down at a table with a large family with a lot of brothers and sisters. Sometimes you don't get a second chance to grab the last that uh, roll or something like that so livestock are similar to that so sometimes they'll eat things that they normally wouldn't eat too because there's that competitive nature so all these dynamics is what we, what we kind of use and, and are mindful when we're working through some of these scenarios and trying to achieve these goals and it's a pretty rewarding experience when you can work within that and animals are happy and and you can see that you're um, you're coming closer to achieve your resource goals with your effort so i guess kind of going forward into next year one thing that i'm thinking in my head already is so you 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 kind of austin had talked about how the opening the canopy in order to maintain or some sort of manage the brush you needed constant management because that was almost the first thing that was it was 
quick to sprout and, and take off and shade out things beneath it. So now you, you've come on with this high, high stock density you've trampled and ripped out and destroyed a lot of this brush. How do you go forward and continue to maintain that uh, in a way that doesn't allow it to just kind of retake over the landscape? And I'll open that up to whoever thinks they, they uh, have the answer for that because I'm I genuinely curious. Yeah, honestly, that's, that is the question. Um, so we have decided to implement a rest year next year in the research paddocks because we've been seeing a bit of a decline in herbaceous diversity and herbaceous cover. And that's mostly due to the fact that I surveyed the herbaceous vegetation very shortly after the cows had gone through. And we've been talking about how it's a super high intensity grazing event, right? And so the herbaceous community was very low when I did the surveying. So we'd kind of expect to see those trends. But just to be sure, we're doing the rest year and then I'm going to go back and survey in August and see if the herbaceous community has been able to kind of take advantage of the decrease in shrubs. Uh, So there'd be more sunlight, more nutrients available to the herbaceous community, and maybe that'll be able to come in and come back lush and diverse and really get a foothold in before the shrubs come back. However, I'm guessing that eventually the shrubs might be knocked back for now, but eventually I think they're going to need continued management. So either by continuing this repeated grazing every year, every other year, or following it with fire, I think would really work to suppress the shrubs. And this isn't a thing you'd have to do forever, right? It's just a matter of getting the shrubs under control at first for the first part of the restoration. And then as soon as you've achieved that, it you can move kind of into management zone where you're not having to put in all this restoration effort and put in all this really intensive grazing and fire, you can do it more periodically in just kind of a more management state rather than an intense restoration effort. Oh, it's interesting because it should be probably, you know, identified that this is a restoration and, and it may take different management. And so we're looking at even frequency of grazing on prairies and, you know, oftentimes Farms and ranches, they simply come back too often with the livestock, and uh, it, it hurts diversity because we're too often coming back to these environments that we've created by we too often of a graze. And so we enhance the ability of a certain species to thrive in those environments. We suppress maybe some things that we'd like to see out there because of that. And so, you know, we're going to have to monitor and be adapted just like any other approach to adaptive management with grazing and decide, you know, how often our animals, you know, and, and to what degree of the disturbance are we looking to facilitate to really, you know, let that environment express itself the way we'd like to see it. We're, I think we're still working on that. Yeah, I think that's a great answer, this idea of adaptive management, because it's not super common to use uh, livestock for this purpose. Not a lot of other people are doing this trying to use beef cattle to knock back shrubs and savannas. So there's a lot to be learned and a lot of on the ground adaptation as we're getting more data and making adjustments. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, being observant and uh, I got to share this quick is that, you know, I came across this on my own farm years ago when we had a really dense um, crop of acorns on a piece of ground on our, our home farm. 
And before we were intensively managing the, the way we are now, our beef cows, they, they disappeared for about two weeks in a, a very similar environment to what we experienced at the refuge. Uh, the only difference was instead of um, hail in this situation at our farm here, it was prickly ash. And there was about two-week period that one year that we hardly ever saw our beef cows. They just kind of disappeared and they were harvesting all these acorns on the ground. And stock density had been affected just because of that high you know acorn crop where our cows got to the stock densities that pushed the uh, the needle on advancing that silvopasture type environment that we were after by accident and so just by observing that scenario gave me some pretty good insight and in far as far as how to use animals to achieve these these goals that we're doing at the re- at the refuge well i think that just brings up a good overarching point to all of this is ob- the, the importance of observation and and not just kind of inactive or just kind of blindly managing however you feel might be best, but observing and reacting. And and I think that's something we talk about a lot is, is training people on to observe the, re, the, the impacts of our management. And I think that's, yeah, oh, that's, that's neat. I appreciate you sharing that story. And, and also for the listener's sake too, uh, we do hope to do another round of this podcast this fall, uh, fall of 2022 to kind of summarize or kind of bring back the conversation of after Austin gets her data collected in August to see how all of this actually plays out in the long term too because like Doug mentioned earlier everything has cascading and compounding effects and we won't you know even even next fall we won't really know what 2021's management will amount to in the long run but it'll give us you know every year and and, and as time goes on we'll be able to kind of further observe and and see and respond and react and it's exciting so we'll definitely be back to share more data as we go but is there anything either of you uh would like to share kind of before we start to wrap wrap up with this i just like to say that uh stay tuned on on the calendar for sustainable farming association there will be field days associated with the refuge so if it's hard for you to maybe conceptualize some of the things we talked about come on out and experience it for yourself uh it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting environment to experience and can learn a little bit more about what we're doing no thanks austin do you have anything you'd like to share start to wrap up um i don't think so or at least I'm, nothing's coming to my head <laughs> yeah, no worries it will five minutes after we uh stop so that's uh, rest assured <laughs> but that's okay um i i guess uh, i'll just uh ask, I guess, a last question. Uh, Doug, I appreciate you giving a shout out to some of our SFA events coming up. But Austin, is there if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing with uh, the University of Minnesota and this project or reach out if they have any more questions? um, How would people go about finding you? Okay, yeah, I would say there's a lot of good information on Oak Savannah's and the work we're doing on the U of M's extension website. And then feel free to reach out to me as well. I'd love to talk to you or answer your emails. My email is yante005 at umn.edu. Awesome. All right. And and as we say at everyone, uh, you know, you can find Doug or me at SFA's website, uh, sfa-mn.org. But thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. I, there's a lot of good info here. And I'm going to be sure to get to one of those field days this summer to kind of see how, how things have played out since I was there last spring. So uh, thanks so much, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. And I look forward to updating you in the fall once we get our last year of data. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture, done well, heals. 
For more resources or to tap into the Farmer to Farmer Network, visit us at sfa-mn.org.